Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape the community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. There's an interesting cultural conversation fomenting around drag. On the one hand, some drag performers have become the pinnacle of popular culture, like RuPaul or Milwaukee's own Trixie Mattel. On the other hand, states around the country are banning drag performances, claiming they're a form of grooming children. But this contrast of high praise and criminalization has been a part of drag from its very beginning, as authors Michael Takash and B.J. Daniels can tell you. Their book, A History of Milwaukee Drag, explores the roots and evolution of drag in Milwaukee, and how our current conversation echoes what we've seen in the past. Takash and Daniels join me now to talk about it. Michael, BJ, thank you both so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having us. Thank you. In reading this book, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn just how early on in Milwaukee's history that we start to see drag performances. What was that like back in the you know late 1800s? So the art of drag as we know it, you know, as an art form really began in the United States around the end of the Civil War. And there were a number of traveling minstrel shows that went around the country raising money for Civil War widows. And one of those companies was Francis and Kelly. And Francis Leon, who is known now (laughs) to be the first drag performer in Wisconsin history, came to Milwaukee on June 7th, 1884, and performed a really groundbreaking show at Nunemacher's Opera Hall. And at this point, he was really at the height, if not a bit of a decline in his career. He and his partner, romantic and business, had traveled the world, had gone to Australia, to Europe, to Asia, uh, performing these numbers in which Leon in female attire, portrayed this prima donna, this woman who was being wooed by several men. And the audience was in on the joke that this was not a woman, but an actual man dressed as a woman for their entertainment. In fact, the Milwaukee audience uh, reviewed the show after that June 7th performance and said that Francis Leon could make a fool of a man if it didn't know that he was a man. And most people in the audience don't believe that Francis Leon is male at all. So it was really fascinating to read this and understand like kind of what the mindset and the mood of the times were, which were, you know, that this emerging art form separate from the minstrel shows and evolving into something really dramatically different um, was happening at a time when, you know, Milwaukee didn't have paved streets. It didn't have electricity. Most homes didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, but they had drag shows and they were seen as a sign that Milwaukee was maturing and becoming more sophisticated and really not just this roughneck pioneer town anymore, but that we had arts and culture. One of the running themes through this book is kind of the dichotomy with which we perceive drag on stage and then how we view female male impersonation, as it was called, outside of that context. One of the things that really struck me was uh, the, the story of Julian Elting and uh, Ralph 
Kerwinio uh, being investigated as a male impersonator. Uh, maybe even more stark at the height of the McCarthy era, homosexual panic. We have a person like Adrian Ames, uh, a drag queen, a leader of nightlife in Milwaukee. How do we square those disparities throughout this timeline? Well, I think that what you look at is like what was considered entertainment, but that entertainment could not translate to real life. The thing is, these people were all okay as long as they were at a distance. When that was bridged and you came into, you left that stage in that other dimension, you kind of crossed that fourth wall, that was where the panic came in. Because then now suddenly it's something else. Now it's insidious, it's perverse, it's sinful, it's uh, criminal. So that has been the dichotomy forever. You're okay as long as you stay in your place. The minute you cross out of that and try to, you know, mingle with the general public, you're a criminal. Yeah. And that that's a really distinct boundary. All of the people that you've mentioned were entertainers and they were entertainment for straight people. They were not, you know, welcoming to gender nonconforming people. They were not welcoming to sexually diverse people. Um, these were shows that were really intended for like upper crust, refined audiences um, whether it was in the 1880s or all the way up until the 1950s when, you know, there was this drag craze in Milwaukee that it was on the level of RuPaul's drag craze today. You know, there were over 20 venues that had nightly drag shows and none of them were gay bars. And that's the interesting distinction, I think, that we look at historically is that up until recently, up until maybe the 1970s, uh, drag was not seen as a representation of the LGBT community. It was not seen as, you know, a reflection of one's own true identity. It was seen as kind of like, kind of like a carnival. It was kind of like a novelty act. Well, and that seems to be one of the one of the big things that characterizes um, this pretty large time period, honestly, from the 1880s down through at least the 1950s. The kind of criminalization of being queer, being a female impersonator, a male impersonator, being in any way genderqueer. What did that look like during that time period? Well, I think that the one thing that we're also maybe missing in this context, too, is that, you know, through Michael's research, yes, we had this huge explosion where in the 50s, not only Milwaukee, but really all over female impersonator shows. I mean, they were touring, they were doing all these things, right? Um, but they couldn't have a real life. But now the funny thing is, is they are doing these things. They are touring They're Again, it's like drag is really big, but now people are expressing their opinions. So it's, we've kind of come full circle since the 50s. But in between that were all these other moments. That's something that people don't understand today. And that I think was one of the biggest findings of the book was that drag was not part of gay life until the late 1960s. It was not something that was allowed in gay bars, drag performers or people who were people at all. No, and actually it was kind of looked down on. I mean, the funny thing is, is I do remember I was not welcome at certain bars in Milwaukee, even if I wasn't in drag because I was a drag queen. You know, I mean, and these are gay bars and you weren't told that you shouldn't be there at the rec room or these, you know, quote unquote, you know, men's bars, but they let you know that your presence wasn't something that they liked until AIDS. I think AIDS changed everything. It's interesting looking at the book. Uh, you have this time period called the golden age of drag. Uh, I think it was 1981 to 1991, something like that. 
And when I think of that time period in LGBTQ history, I, of course, think of this deadly pandemic that was killing so very many young men. What made that moment a a golden time for drag, despite the other things that were happening? The shocking discrimination, the fear-mongering, all of a sudden, your presence on stage was needed to shore up the troops, if you will. People went out to clubs throughout the 80s as a measure of support. And so in a strange way, the LGBT community really came together and queens led the way because they were there. They were the ones that were on stage. They were the ones that were out in front. And another point is that, you know, even before AIDS arrived, we think now in retrospect that the 80s was a decade that was, you know, completely tainted by AIDS. And it was in the later half of the decade, Mm -hmm. at least in Wisconsin. Um, But the first half of the decade was very different than we remember it. I mean, we were coming out of the disco era. There was this great sense of liberation and accomplishment and momentum and movement for gay rights. And there was this great sense of access and integration due to the disco movement. Discos were places that like everyone came together from across, you know, racial and sexual and, you know, economic backgrounds. And nowhere demonstrated that better than the gay bars of the era, like Circus or the Red Baron or Park Avenue. So looking at the success of those venues, there were, again, very pioneering investors who created these new spaces and really ramped things up. It feels like right now we're in a different kind of golden age of drag as a result of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Your last chapter, of course, deals with this a lot. We have uh, two winners from Milwaukee, Trixie Mattel and Jada Essence Hall. We have another queen from Milwaukee who is just on the current season of Drag Race, James Mansfield. How has that drag race, how has that changed the drag world we see now in Milwaukee? Well, I think it's like we're going back to the 50s again. I remember when RuPaul's Drag Race first started on TV and it was very like niche, you know, like it was just you were sharing this with a few of your friends. And you're like, oh, my God, did you see that show? It's called Drag Race. And it's and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, their sister started watching it with them, then their mom, you know, and all of a sudden, I think, honestly, the show became a phenomenon because it was so accessible to like the general public. There was a fallow period there that then got this dramatic uplift in the 2000s because of the show. And from there, you know, sprang all these other stories of people who said, wow, you know, now there's something more to aspire to than just a local title, you know, a local booking. Drag queens started looking at things differently. And the fact that so many people came from Milwaukee and from the Milwaukee drag scene that have been able to achieve all this success, I think, especially Jada and Trixie, they're both two sides of a different coin. Jada is just this really talented makeup artist, designer, hilarious, you know, all these things. Trixie is a writer, a musician, a comedian. I'm not surprised. I think Milwaukee's always had a really big creative community. And I think RuPaul's Drag Race kind of pushed it forward. And then, of course, two Hamburger Marys opening here. It was a cool thing to go see drag shows again. So all of a sudden, I think it really, all those things converged in one. And I think that they all converged on a foundation that people didn't even know they had. And I think that is probably one of the most startling things about my work and our work as a history project 
there's this whole extensive history out there and heritage that so few people know about and so few people even realize influence them in so many ways the structures and the connections and the the traditions and the rituals that you know were founded over this long series of seven generations is what bred these modern day rupaul superstars i mean they came up in an environment that was had all of these influences and all of Michael Takash and BJ Daniels are co-authors of A History of Milwaukee Drag, Seven Generations of Glamour. Takash is a curator for the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. Daniels is a legendary Milwaukee drag queen who is being honored by Milwaukee with a commendation for his contributions to Milwaukee's LGBTQ community. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lake effect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight Podcast.